Hey, 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 closet busters, come on and gather around. It's time once again to kick down those closet doors of life. We're here to escape our BS, explore our fears, and elevate our self-expression. I'm your host, Rick Clemens, bold move expert and coming out coach, and I'm going to take you to the party, the pulpit, the wake, and back to the party of living your life uncloseted. So come on, grab hold of yourself and get ready to step out, step up, and step in to living your truth as we explore more stories, tips, and tricks for living your life uncloseted. Now let's get to the show. Hey, 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 closet dwellers and bold move makers. It is time once again for Life Uncloseted. And I just have to say, sometimes you just got to, well, you got to go out there and create a revolution. And sometimes those revolutions are not the kind that you think. Sometimes it's about realizing that being a boy and being forced to attend schools in a girl's uniform or being a girl and having to pretend that you're not really who you are, those things just don't work. And sometimes it's even the bathroom laws and everything else that we hear about going on in this country that make people question things, make people feel like, wait, something's not right here. And then also puts a lot of people on defense. Unfortunately, that is the world we seem to be living in right now. And the reason I wanted to come back and once again step into this space is because I feel like the political climate we are in is dictating so many false narratives and causing people not to understand each other and not to be just listening and having that empathetic ear and trying to understand one another. And I'm raising my hand myself here on this because there's certain things that I'm not understanding. And sometimes I get so into my own space that I don't allow the struggles of what others are thinking to permeate my own ability to understand. And part of the understanding is really understanding the trans movement. And I even hate to call it the trans movement because trans people have been around since the beginning of time. And what I see is trans people are saying, I want to be heard. I want to be seen and I want to be understood. And that's why I invited this guest um, to be on the show today. She's an author and she's written a beautiful book that I think needs to be in the hands of any parent for sure, because none of us know how our kids are going to do the journey of life. Her book is called The Trans Generation, How Trans Kids and Their Parents are creating a gender revolution. And I'm excited to have this conversation because every time we get to talk about what's going on in the world of gender identity, sexuality, and the trans quote person, we opened up minds and we opened up dialogue. And with that, I'd like to invite Ann Travers to join me at this point in time so we can have a really true dialogue. So welcome to the podcast, Ann. I'm so happy to have you here. Thanks so much for having me on, Rick. <clears throat> this is really, how do we both want to say? We were just talking about this before we turned on the recorder. It is, um, I guess, what I would say, more than necessary conversation right now. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. I mean, it's one of many conversations that we need to have about making more space and safety for vulnerable people. And I think you just summed it up there. It is about vulnerable people, and it's not about sides. It's not about beliefs. It's not about any of that. I mean, those are drivers to this whole conversation, but I think what it is is about making space, like saying, okay, let's let's see what you're about. Let's hear what I'm about. Doesn't necessarily mean we're going to agree and not that we're going to get each other 100% of the time, but it seems like to me, and you know, you're, you're more the expert in this arena than I am, um, 
that this trans conversation is almost like nobody wants to make space for it. There's some space out there, but mostly people don't want to make space for it at this point. Would you agree? Yeah. And when they don't want to make space for the conversation, they don't want to make space for people. They don't want to um, allow trans people to exist and to be safe. So it's not just a matter of disagreeing. I mean, it's one thing to have different viewpoints, right. but the, you know, the problem for trans people is when people don't want to acknowledge us, it creates incredible vulnerability, mm -hmm. which is and, kind of normal for a right. long time. And I wonder if that vulnerability, I mean, it's one thing to be vulnerable in your race and to be vulnerable in your sexual orientation, but this gender identity vulnerability, and I, I will admit it, when I first started working around in this arena and trying to wrap my head around it, I stumbled and I, and I tripped and I fell many times trying to embrace my trans brothers and sisters because it was in my own head a complete re-engineering that I had to go through. But when people don't even give it space, then nothing can happen. Nothing can, no progress can be made, at least from the way I look at this. And I know this is really why part of the reason that you went down this path to write this book is let's turn this into more of a conversation. And if it needs to become the revolution that it really needs to, then let's make it happen. Yeah. I, I mean, I think people's taken for granted assumptions about there being only two sexes and that there are, you know, limited ways to be. Each of those sexes are so ingrained. I mean, I try to think back to when maybe I became conscious of trans people for the first time when I was young. Mm -hmm. And the only image that I have in my mind is of these absolutely depraved, mentally ill people. And I obviously didn't knowingly interact with trans people. It was more just the way that they were talked about in a way that they were shunned. Mm -hmm. You know, that this was so beyond the pale. This was, you know, like the most deviant of the deviant. And, I mean, we know that this is one of the ways in which, uh, you know, some people have advantage and power by creating these horrible stereotypes of other people. But, you know, it, it, it's you take it in. You, you take it in without even being conscious of it so that by the time you start to think about gender in a, a different way, you're really having to undo a lot of training. Well, I think that's the key issue here is, and I'm going to use a really good example of this. Um, and people who've listened to the podcast have heard this, but it's been a, a while. When I first started speaking on PFLAG panels at colleges and universities, there was my friend Michelle that I had a really hard time with because First, Michelle, for me at that point in time, in my naive understanding of trans, she very much presented as a very masculine woman. Mm -hmm. Now, granted, Michelle didn't even begin the journey until she was in her 50s. And she is a big statured person. Yes. And so for me, I could see the masculine features, the Adam's apple, just the build and everything was hyper-masculine, but then as I got to know her and I got into my own space of re-engineering my mind, which is what it was, I had to re-engineer. I had to undo everything that the blueprint had been set in my life, even as a gay man, you know, even as a, to come out as a gay man, 
I had to undo this stuff to go, okay, now how do I embrace this and start to respect and understand? Because I knew intellectually this had nothing to do on the surface with sexual orientation. I knew it was about gender identity. I understood it was the picture in the mirror, so to speak, that was the whole thing. But even with all of that understanding, I had to consciously and in my own awareness go, Rick, this is where you're screwing up, man. Yet I wouldn't beat myself up because I knew I had to go through this part of the unwinding to get to the space now where I can say, yes, I totally get it. I get it. I respect it. I can see it. I can embrace my, you know, but if you don't give yourself that space, then nothing's going to change. And I think that's where a lot of the problem is. Yeah. And you couldn't see her. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Not, no. not given the way that you'd been socialized, you know, the way in which you had come to think about gender, it made her invisible. Even when she was standing right in front of your face, it's an incredible thing. Yeah. The way that you can just, be so blind, be so unable to see the people who are standing right in front of us. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the challenge is when we can't see the people in front of us. And I, again, I'm going to use myself as an example. There are times I can't see the Christian person right in front of me because my mindset is, oh, they're going to end up being like all these crazy ones that this is the only way they see things. And yet when I stop and say, listen, hear, understand, try to be empathetic, see where they're coming from. It changes the whole dynamic. Suddenly I can have conversations with them. Um, and we were just talking, for those of you listening, and I were talking before we got on the podcast about trips to Philadelphia. And I just returned from one where I made a lot of assumptions. And I didn't realize how many assumptions I made until I was sitting down to start preparing for this podcast and another one today. And the assumptions I made were about people that I actually had dialogue with last week that I thought, oh, they're going to, you know, if I say something about being gay, these people are going to actually like probably not want to have anything to do with me. And ironically, every person that I went that distance, which I usually do, I'm not one to hide, but it was so interesting that I made assumptions about certain people and three people that stick out in my mind all said, oh my God, that's great, man. I have a gay brother or I have a lesbian sister or my best friend that I live with. It, it's so interesting when we don't make the space where we go and how we cut somebody off. And I think yeah. this is why this is so important right now in this space and time to start opening that dialogue. So when you started to write the book, what was the biggest intention for you? What was the message you were trying to get out to the world with this book? I wanted people to understand that the way in which they're imposing gender on all kids is damaging, but that it's particularly damaging to kids who are, you know, either trans or gender nonconforming. And one of the things that I would like people to know is that the majority of trans kids are invisible. Mm -hmm. they, they know they're not welcome. They know they won't be seen for who they are. So they hide in plain sight because they have to, except for there are some kids who are just so gender nonconforming, they can't hide and they tend to be very vulnerable to, to bullying and abuse. Mm -hmm. But for kids who are capable of hiding, um, they often hide because you know, the message is really clear that the, there is no place for them. They're not welcome. And so 
for adults, whenever we're dealing with kids, even if we don't know it, we have to assume there's, there are trans, kid, trans kids in that group. So once you start thinking about that, then you think, okay, so if I am going to be acting like I am, you know, with a group of boys and girls, and I know who each of them are, then, you know, then you don't think about it. But if you start going, okay, there are trans kids, or there are kids who are uncomfortable with binary gender in this group, then I need to stop organizing kids according to gender categories. I mean, that's one of the biggest things we can do. We can stop talking about boys and girls and we can stop, you know, separating kids into boy and girl categories. We can stop organizing clothing in terms of boy and girl kinds so that kids can just like what they like and like who they like and feel that there is a place for them because they're not constantly being told that, you know, there are two choices and they don't have any say in which one they're assigned to. Yeah. I think this thing that you just said was so powerful simply because I'm going to kind of recapitulate the words of so that kids can just like what they like and like who they like and be who they are. It's amazing because I sit back and look at my life and I'm sure many of us do this, you included. If we went back to who we were as a child, None of this shit mattered. No. None of this mattered until somebody started to say, this matters. Yeah. And as I watch young kids today, in fact, when I was flying home from Philadelphia, there was a young boy who was sitting across the aisle from me. And I could tell he was just having so much fun playing. He had a little sister who was very young, lap child in his mom's lap. But he was having so much fun playing with her and then as I started to observe, he'd be on his iPad and he'd be playing, you know, his video games or whatever. But then he'd reach over and he'd be playing with his sister's toys and dolls and stuff. And then he'd go back to doing his thing. But as I continued to watch, it was this constant movement from what some of us would say, oh, now he's playing with masculine things. Oh, now he's playing with feminine things. And then there were things he'd be doing that I'd go, really? He's playing cards. So... Is that masculine or feminine? And, and because I was observing this because I knew we were going to have this interview. And I thought, I really want to start observing kids on, you know, as I'm seeing them yeah. to just kind of see this stuff. Because it's the kid, the child is innocent until we unwrap that innocence. Well, they're just exploring the world, but they get messages about gender so early. I mean, even before, I mean, these, you know, gender reveal parties, like at first I thought, people were having parties to celebrate their trans kid coming out. And then I realized, no, this is the in utero. Oh, we're having a, a boy or a girl as if that tells you anything about the kid. Right. The, the messages that kids get about what they're supposed to be like, what they're supposed to like doing, who they're supposed to be friends with around gender are so powerful. I mean, I've just noticed it, you know, with my own kids, if um, they have, you know, a so-called cross-sex friendship, you know, if they're, and the way in which either other kids or adults will say, oh, he's got a girlfriend or, oh, she, and I've just said, you know, stop. Don't say this to my kid. Don't, you know, she's four. Don't sexualize her friendships. You know, and don't, don't teach her that being friends with boys is not appropriate. Like, let her pick, pick the kids that she enjoys their company, you know like that who she has shared interests with don't don't tell her that it means something different exactly. i mean it it limits them so much but don't you believe and i'm going to go like like really forward so here we are in our adulthood 
I believe this is why, and I, I'm going to just say it like I feel it. This is why things are so fucked up with men and women's relationships is because we got sexualized at that age. And so now this is how a man's supposed to do things. And this is how women are supposed to show up. And then this is why we have this glass ceiling. And it's like, if this was not an issue, if we could have started and wiped the slate clean, which is part of what I know you're trying to do yeah. with the work you're doing in the book, I wonder what the next you know, two generations would look like if sexuality and gender and sexual orientation were not an issue. How much of all the bullshit in society that we're dealing with right now would be obliterated? Well, it would certainly be an improvement, but it's really important to, to remember, too, that gender difference is not neutral. It's all about gender inequality. And the, the devaluation of women and the feminine is a big part of why relationships between men and women are so problematic, both because, you know, there's certainly the heterosexualization of all those relationships, which is unbelievably tedious and creates, you know, a lot of unhealthy relationships, but also just this, you know, the way in which girls and women and people who are feminine identified are devalued and looked down upon. And that, you know, and that also forces boys and men to hate parts of themselves and to, you know, to look at girls and women in ways that aren't respectful. And I mean, it's just, it, it, it's so damaging. Yeah. yeah, it is damaging. And I know as a father of two young women that as I've watched them go through this life and having gay fathers um, and then going through different stages of that and then realizing they're stepping into their own being and how they choose to Talk about being the children of, you know, gay fathers, plus having a heterosexual mother. It's so interesting to see them latch into the power of who they are. But then at times, the blueprint of society gets in the way. And they don't know if they can actually do that. And if they do, are they going to be considered, you know, a bitch? Are they going to be considered a butch feminist? You know, it's all these things that start to show up and it's like, well, wait, they're just young women who are living life from a different lens than these young women over here. And that's the piece that I think gets missed so often is we're all living life through our lens. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean the lens is correct. Doesn't mean it's right or wrong. It's here's the lens. So, oh, let me understand your lens. And then how can we work together to make some of those lenses come together and keep peace and harmony? And that's, that's the human struggle, in my opinion. And this gender inequality and everything is just part of contributing to that. But we don't listen and we don't want to be heard. That's, it's either this way or no way. And that's so frustrating. But controlling the lenses under which people are viewed and view themselves is a really important aspect of power, which relates to, you know, the image of the trans person until the last 10 or 20 years as being, you know, the most deviant kind of person, someone who's just, Mm -hmm. you know, subhuman. Um, Or for girls and women to get the message that, you know, no matter what, they're never going to get sexuality right. You know, it's impossible. they're always going to be too much this or too less this, which is really destructive to, you know, to get all those messages. But how do we create, um, you know, resistance to the kinds of controlling narratives that 
make people feel less than others and make other people feel that they are less than. I mean, I think, you know, the lenses are really related to systems of power. Yep. And And then that power is about, wait, I believe this is the way things are. And again, current administration, we we, we go on about that for hours. But it is about the lens of power. And the lens of power of, okay, I believe this to be true, so this is how women should show up in the world. And oh, by the way, if you're LGBTQ, then this is how you should show up if you're even granted the opportunity to show up. And oh, by the way, if you're of this, you know, financial, you know, status, this is how, it's, it's that whole thing and it is all about power. That's yeah. the thing. And when we feel like we have to control the power of that lens, I know personally for me when I try to do that, that's when I screw up the most. And that's when I'm least happy. It's because I'm trying to control a lens of somebody that I don't really understand instead of stepping into the space of help me understand your lens. It's a whole different ballgame. Yeah. And also um, forming community and coalition with other people helps you build a, you know, a, an alternate lens that creates more space. I, I mean, I remember when I first came out as a lesbian oh my God, it's like my world got so much better because the way that I was able to show up more fully and the way in which I was able to be critical of this assumption of, you know, heterosexual normalcy and what it meant to be female and all that kind of stuff. I mean, for me, it was unbelievably liberating. And, you know, as I've grown over the years and, you know, sort of become part of, you know, a a very complex sort of trans movement and, um, you know, work to be an anti-racist ally, I found that, you know, expanding my own worldview has been so empowering. It's created more space for me, that's for sure. Well, likewise. And one of the things I know you talk about in the book that kind of goes to this freedom and freeing yourself, and it's always been one of the challenges I've found in some of the trans dialogue I have. And I know parents, because I'm a parent, you're a parent, so we we relate to the protecting our kids. But you talk about parents who allow their kids to be trans at home and then play their normative role outside of the home. And I question, and I guess this is where we can have a little dialogue, I question if that's actually the best thing, only because what's the message you're sending to children about authenticity and being who you are and trusting yourself. It seems to me that it could almost be more damaging. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Well, I think that for kids whose parents only allow them to be who they are at home, that at least they are allowed to be who they are somewhere and that they feel loved and accepted within their family. Um, Sometimes the kids and the parents are on the same page about living a double life because they both you know, they all of them assess the environment and they think there is no way that I can go to school as a girl. I will get my head kicked in and, yep. you know, you can't protect me. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it's a, it's a family decision where everybody says, you're right. We're going to try to get you as an adult, you know, figure out ways for you to create, you know, to live more fully. But right now to keep you safe, this is yep. what we're doing. And the kids may suffer from it but they don't they don't resent the parents because they're making the decision together mm-hmm. it's a real problem when the kid is ready to get out there yeah. and live authentically and the parents are embarrassed or they're not ready to deal with it mm-hmm. that 
that sends a pretty bad message. At the same time, you know, we have to remember that some parents are situated to advocate for their kids much more effectively than others. I mean, the parents that I interviewed in the book who were advocating for their kids, not all of them, but most of them um, were middle class. They had access to resources. They understood the way in which institutions worked. Mm -hmm. They were familiar with them. You know, I think if you're a single mom who is working in a low-wage job where you can't take any time off because you'll lose your job, and you've got a kid who is trans, you know, your yep, ability yep. to advocate for that kid is really compromised, just as, mm -hmm. you know, as parents of vulnerable children have In any, struggled. Yeah. Right, exactly. And, I, and the reason I asked that question was because I wanted to get this, wow, there's more to this than just the question. Yeah. There's so many ways to look at this. And I know as I've had some conversations, um, I can't think of her name right now, but her book is Raising Your Rainbow. Um, she was part of our PFLAG chapter. And there was a lot of this whole dialogue about her son and being able for him to dress up and not dress up and all this sort of stuff. And I thought, how wonderful that at least the child has the right kind of support for him. And it comes down to that for every family. Some parents aren't going to be able to advocate simply because of their situation, but some parents don't have the capacity to even advocate. I mean, my parents didn't know how to even embrace me as a gay man for many, many years. And once I got past that, oh, this is just bullshit, and realized they just couldn't do it. Yeah, I need to realize they couldn't do it. And so for someone to say, well, if you have a gender nonconforming or, you know, gender queer child or trans child, you need to be in there doing this, this and this. I'm like, that would be great. But if the parent doesn't have the capacity, then let's find that child and that parent the right kind of support yeah. for them to create that and find what works for them and their family unit. Because well, not all things are created equal. No, and let's say families that are struggling with poverty, that are struggling with racism and colonialism. I mean, in so many ways, they're already under-resourced. So mm -hmm. part of what I hope to, the, the message that I'm communicating in the book is if we really want to support all trans kids, we need to support all kids. And that means all families. So nobody should be living in substandard housing. Nobody should be struggling to access basic health care, etc. I mean, you know, it's really important to think about trans kids as being in every single population. And the trans issue is not just, you know, in most cases, it's not the only issue that that kid and that family is dealing with. And, you know, the other issues that are difficult for them get in the way of them being able to support the trans kids. So I, I you know, my, my perspective is quite anti-poverty, anti-racism, anti-colonialism, all of yeah, it. All of it, yes, because there is, no, there is no path that says, oh, with this socioeconomic income and this and this, oh, okay, there are no trans here. It's everywhere. Yeah. It's like there's gays and lesbians everywhere, just like there's kids yeah. with autism everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah, you know, the thing is, is we tend to start to put these buckets, which we need the buckets so we can identify, okay, where's the challenges, where's the issues, but then suddenly, what I've perceived is suddenly, so I'm gonna, I mean, my daughter struggles with anxiety and depression. And it just, it's very rampant. I could leave her in that bucket. But she's so much more than a child that suffers from that. She suffers from, you know, sometimes too much pot use. Sometimes she suffers from 
just not being motivated. Well, when we start to put all these things together, it's just a child. It's just my kid. Now, because I understand some of these things, then I can go find the way to best advocate for it. But when, when people say, oh, it's the gay kid and this is why it's happening and this is because of the popular. No, you can't go and just compartmentalize it so much because that's not good for the child either because they need the holistic approach. At least that's my opinion. There's a holistic part of, okay, you happen to be gay or you happen to be trans. Oh, and you also, oh, wow, your family has lots of money. Oh, and also your mom is one of the best advocates for, you know, breast cancer or whatever. There becomes, it's just another piece of the puzzle of who they are. This isn't everything that defines that child or person, for that matter. And what often happens is that the most privileged trans kids who are granted very vulnerable tend to get most of the um, exposure in culture. You know, their parents tend to be relatively well off. They're more likely to be white. They're more likely to be binary gender conforming. And it's easy to think that the issues of trans kids are just about gender if you are just looking at those kids. But... You know, as you said, trans kids are in every population. They're everywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So as you put, started to put the work together on the book, what was something that kind of shocked you the most as you started doing all this work? You know, nothing, to be honest, really shocked me. Um, it was more what moved me. Mm-hmm. So what uh, you? The kids and the parents. Because I only talked to parents who supported their kids. I think I, I mean, I didn't look for people who didn't support their trans kids, but I did, I did talk to some kids whose parents didn't support them, but I don't know. I think every kid and every parent I talked to was a really special person. And, you know, I know it could sound trite to say, oh, everyone I interviewed was so wonderful, but there's something amazing about really talking to somebody about their lives, how they're living, what's important to them. And, you know, I was just, I was moved by so many different things, by kids who showed tremendous courage, who, you know, by kids who'd suffered so much, by parents who had suffered so much because they couldn't protect their kids, for parents who had, you know, developed resources for other parents you know some parents of trans kids had ended up taking in trans kids who had been kicked out of their family so it was just an incredibly moving experience to get to know the kids that i interviewed and the parents that i interviewed um and in a lot of ways if you want to understand what the society you're living in is like interview you know a wide cross-section of really vulnerable people in that society and it's 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 an incredible experience yeah i remember years ago i was on the board of directors for a at-risk youth home in my the town i lived in and um i had kids you know coming in that home all the time i wasn't there all the time but when we'd be there for board meetings or other stuff helping with activities and i could pick out the gay kids, the lesbians, the the trans kids in a heartbeat because you could just see that that edge to them of they're here, but there's that something else. Yeah. And I know part of that was probably because I'm part of the community and I could spot it, but I'll never forget one interaction I had with a young trans person and 
we were in a board meeting and then we took a little break and then the gal that I did a lot of work with, she goes, I got to go. And I'm like, why, what's going on? And she goes, I've just, I've got to take care of her because she needs, she just, all she needs is a wig and I'm trying to get some money so we can just get her a wig so she can feel herself. And I remember just saying here, how much, how much are you talking? How much do we need? And she goes, I need like just $25. And I gave her 20 bucks because that's all I had in my wallet. I said, just go do it. By the time we got done with our board meeting that day, um, she had gone and got the wig and I walked out and this beautiful child, and that's what I'm going to say, beautiful child, because I don't know what that, that person ended up identifying as. Just the demeanor of that child once I walked out of that house was glowing. Yeah. They were happy. Yeah. They were being who they are. And I'm using those pronouns because this is some of the thing I still struggle with it when people say, use the pronouns they, them, there. But I'm saying that because I want people to start to get used to this, that some people may not say I'm a him or a her. They just don't identify that way. And that's okay because it could be they never will. It could be for where they are in their particular chapter in their life. This is where they've got to be to help themselves process. And if we don't make room for these kind of conversations, we are going to be a society continually stuck in. It's either A or B. It's black or white. And there is no black or white. No, and I think if we were to start using they, them, there for people who haven't told us what pronouns they prefer, just as a default, until someone says, until we say, you know, I'm using they, them, there. Is that right for you, or would you prefer? And they tell us, then we need to use the pronoun they prefer. But if we're just talking about people randomly and started to refer to them as they rather than she or mm-hmm. he, I think that would be a really good change. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting because my daughter started um, college a year ago here in San Luis Obispo. And I remember the um, orientation two day visit that we did in the middle of summer, walking into the big auditorium where parents and kids and everybody were in there. And the vice president of student affairs got up to the microphone and he said, my name's Keith and I identify as he, him, his, and I remember some parents around me kind of looking at each other going, what is that? And I knew then that this was, first I knew it was a good school no matter what, but I knew then that my daughter was at least in a place that was attempting to be progressive and attempting to open the dialogue. And is it difficult? Yes, at times it's very difficult because it's like this is, again, the blueprint has been laid for all of us. So sometimes to go, oh, they, when it's a single person, but yet, oftentimes, if we really didn't overanalyze our language, there's oftentimes we refer to, they want to go do this. Oh, yeah. And it's, we're talking about a single person. Yeah. <laughs> but because it's been called out that this is how some people want to be referred to, suddenly it's like this big issue. Yes, it's going to be a change, but once we kind of get comfortable and realize how important it is for this person, then it's just a matter of respect, plain and simple. But rather than having individual trans people, you know, have to show up to ask for that, mm-hmm. I think that we could just change the way that we operate so that we're not assuming that we know what somebody's gender mm-hmm. is on the basis of their appearance. Mm-hmm. So we, could, we could let somebody tell us their gender mm-hmm. before we started using gender terms to refer to them, you know, like, and I think that that would be really healthy for kids. Right. Kids, kids were, you know, sort of not categorized as boys and girls and if 
they were, you know, taught that there are a wide range of gender options and that some people don't like to identify as a gender at all, but for some people it's really